I grew up in the 70s when variety shows were on everyone's television, and they were larger than life. These shows would have all kinds of performances, from comedy to magic to acrobatics, but our favorites were the country music singers. I wanted to be Dolly Parton, so much so that I was Dolly Parton for Halloween, and my sister was Loretta Lynn. Today, I had the privilege of sitting where country music stars have sat. In a town called Mineola, there's a small studio tucked away beside the historic Beckham Hotel. Here, musicians like Casey Musgraves and Miranda Lambert have learned to play guitar and write songs. It's a magical place where students come from miles around to glean songwriting wisdom from their teacher, John DeFore. We visited John on a warm July day, wanting to hear his life story and what inspires him. I, well, I picked up the guitar when I was 12. Okay. And uh, it's paid for my entire life. On this episode of Kava, we learn where John's love for music comes from, how he launched his career, and what it was like to be a musician in the turbulent 60s as the world began to change forever. So uh, music has always been, though, you know. A huge part of your family. Oh, yeah. And my dad played music. The one one luxury he allowed himself was stereo. So we always had music playing. My dad would take us to operas or concerts rather than movies. Okay. So on weekends, we, we would study the libretto or the story of the opera and have our meal and then go to the opera. And so... I loved it, you know, I just loved the music. And, uh, but the best part about the opera was on the back of the seats over there, they had little binoculars and you could put sixpence in and get their binoculars out. And what little 10 or 11 year old boy doesn't like binoculars? <laughs> yes. That was the best part of the opera. My grandmother was a violinist, uh, organist and pianist. My mother was a violinist, organist and pianist. My mother wrote a lot of songs, a lot of stuff like that. She just, quit and became a mother, her own choice. And we begged her and pleaded with her, and my dad did too, for her to play, and she just, she was a strong, very silent, strong lady. And if you, as long as you didn't push her, you were never in trouble. If you pushed her, you find out how strong she was. <laughs> yeah, uh, but she was a, it sounds, uh, she'd kill me if I said, she was very logical. If if you insult my father, mm-hmm. part of him says, I wonder what I did. Right. Uh, if you insulted my mother, she'd say, what's wrong with you? That's the way she... Yes. Uh, one time a woman met her and she said, I'd really like to be your friend. And my mother said, well, I really just don't have time. I said, said I've got three friends right now. And, we're <laughs> and I said, you didn't like her? He said... No, she seemed real nice. I just don't have time right. for another friend. 
you know, but uh, she was very, very sweet. She, everybody always talked about how sweet she was. She wouldn't hurt you for anything, but she's going to tell you how it is. I was born in Mississippi. We were there for until 1950. At that time, uh, my dad moved to Alaska. We were missionaries. So he drove, drove us from Mississippi all the way up the Alcan Highway into Anchorage. And we moved to Scotland when I was 10. Oh my and so I went to Scottish schools. Matter of fact, I sang in the Edinburgh Boys Choir with 200 other little boys or something. That's and awesome. uh, it was fun. Dad was going to the University of Edinburgh for a doctorate. doctorate. Oh, okay. And uh, so it was, a, it was a fun. We went to the regular schools. And so when we came back, uh, my grandmother couldn't understand us. Wow. My, me okay. and my brother. You know okay, how so kids pick up accents. Yes. What is your age difference between you and your brother? Okay, my brother was two years younger than me. Okay. Then the next brother was born in Alaska. I left him out. I'm sorry. But okay. He was born so in Alaska. The I'm the oldest. And then my fourth brother was born in, my third brother, excuse me, was born in Scotland. Oh, wow. So one, so I, I, my, me and my brother are Mississippi, and they've got Alaska and Scotland on their birth certificate. <laughs> That's so, all right. rather mundane, but still fun. Okay. And then we came back to the States. Okay. Uh, I was, unfortunately, you know what a preacher's kids are known yes, for. So I, I got in a, <laughs> quite a bit of trouble and okay. finally had to move in with my grandparents and leave the town, Waco, okay. and moved it back into Mississippi. Started playing guitar okay. a lot then. And it just kind of filled a hole. And so I graduated in 64. Uh, my dad said, be in college or have a job and pay rent. Okay. And uh, that, those days it was different than today, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was when I turned 18, he said that. And so I joined the Air Force and they immediately sent me to London. Okay. What a great place. London in the 1960s. What a great place indeed. They called it Swinging London. It was the world capital of youth and the counterculture. A new generation was rising up and rejecting the gloom of post-war England. This was a generation of artists, fashion icons, of filmmakers, and musicians. They challenged the old ways of thinking and turned London into a place full of color and life. In every way, it was completely different from John's hometown. London was a fabulous place back then. Just a great place. For John, London was an escape from the chaos building up in his homeland. Mississippi was experiencing something known in the Deep South as a ruckus. People like Helen Gurley Brown suggested that women should have careers instead of being tied to their husbands. These ideas were causing outrage. Meanwhile, Time Magazine's Man of the Year was in jail. Someone named Martin Luther King Jr. had made the front cover, despite being a black man in a very segregated America. And there he was in the pictures, going to jail for peacefully walking the streets in downtown Birmingham, Alabama just next door to John's home state of Mississippi. And then there were rumors on everyone's lips. They were saying that Russia and America both had nuclear power to destroy half the world, and they weren't getting along with each other. 
And now Cuba had missiles too, just 90 miles away from American shores. John's friends and family were living every day knowing that their lives could end with one press of a button. Mick Jagger put it this way, We only had three minutes to live. You just did everything now. So John went across the ocean. London was just supposed to be a stop for him on his way to serve in Vietnam. I was going to be going to Vietnam from London, but I had some back injuries and stuff, and so they never sent me. John had just graduated high school, and here he was watching his friends go to war in a strange jungle country. The war traveled back home to American televisions, where families watched the death toll go up every night and grew confused about why America was fighting this war. Before long, there were protests. The Vietnam War divided the nation like nothing else had. I lived in England from 64 to 73. And John was right at home. Music was taking over the world, and it was coming from London. I remember when it was time to get discharged. Uh, If you stay overseas, you have to get a passport. You don't have to have a passport if you're in the military. But if you're not in the military, you have to have a passport. So I'm filling out my passport thing, and it said occupation. I didn't have one. I played guitar. Right. So I wrote down musician. Okay. And that's what I became. You had the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, Pink Floyd, and so many others making music in the same place. It was the British Invasion. Their music mirrored the confusion everyone was feeling about this quickly changing world. John made his way in London by playing on the streets and making friends. And uh, played with some little bands and played some solo stuff and met some real neat people over there. So I met a guy you've never heard of called Donovan, but he was real. He was the English. Have you heard of Donovan? Okay, well, I met Donovan over there. And uh, Cat Stevens before he was famous. Right. And uh, uh, I had a thing for his girlfriend, Jan, there. (laughs) She was pretty. And uh, I did some busking down on Portobello Street. And uh, that's where they got this huge flea market over there. Big, huge flea market. I met a guy named Ramblin' Jack Elliott. That's the guy that taught me, that told me where our Les Cousins was. There was a club called... We call it Les Cousins. Uh, they probably had more of a French pronunciation, Lake Cousin, I think, something like that, but I don't know. But anyway, it was kind of a end place for all the musicians to go after they played and stuff. Les Cousins, as John calls it, was not just any cafe. Located beneath a restaurant at 49 Greek Street in the heart of Soho, it was a tiny and claustrophobic den holding, at guess, maybe 100 people when full. By today's standard, it was a health and safety nightmare, reached by a dark, narrow staircase leading down from the street with no discernible fire exits. Some of the notable artists who were drawn to the venue were Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Cat Stevens, Donovan, Arlo Guthrie, and Bob Dylan. Oh, we love Bob Dylan. They would come to this underground music club and play together until the sun rose. Music was written, albums were recorded, and creativity flooded the small space. 
In the middle of a youth rebellion, racial violence, nuclear weapons, and the first televised war, music was a way for many artists to join the chaos. The Who sang, This Is My Generations. The Beatles begged for everybody to come together. And Scott McKenzie sang, All Across the Nation, Such a Strange Vibration, People in Motion, There's a Whole Generation with a New Explanation. Dad joined the service in 1964, right in the middle of it, you wow. know, and I was supposed to go if so I hadn't hurt so my scary? back. Huh? Was that so scary, the thought no. of that? It was a different world. In the, in the 60s, Bob Seger had a song that says, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Different times. John, on the other hand, was drawn to those musicians who recalled the days of a simpler world. People like Cat Stevens and Donovan were simply happy to sing about happy things. It was a way of escaping, perhaps. John found his place in London, his home away from home. Married, married English girl. Came back to the States for a short period, couldn't stand it, went back to London. Wow. Loved my family, but London was a fabulous place back then. Okay. Just a great place. And music would take John to all kinds of places. He couldn't stay in London forever. A new life was just beginning to open up for John. As the shadow of confusion spread across the world, his future was starting to take shape. While his generation was asking questions, John looked to the next generation and to music, and he found some pretty good answers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kavah the Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will subscribe, download, and share this on your social media pages and with your family and friends. If you find yourself in a desperate place, it is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who have gone before you and shared their stories. They have exemplified the meaning of Kavah, learning to wait during difficult times to find an eventual positive outcome. I can't express my gratitude for my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I would not be able to do this without you. For more information, please visit kavathepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.